0: a daily newsletter written by Tony Greer, who is a 30-year veteran trader in the financial markets. I think it's important to be responsible with your personal finances and investments, and it's hard to do that without understanding the markets. Now, this is where The Morning Navigator fills a specific need for me. If you're looking for actionable trade ideas or simply to educate yourself about the markets, then The Morning Navigator will help you to do both. It's an interesting, informative, and amusing daily read. Now, a subscription to the Morning Navigator normally costs $60 a month or $650 per year. However, my listeners can go to tgmacro.com, sign up for a free one-week trial, and apply the code ZUBY, Z-U-B-Y, at checkout for a discount of either $10 off the $60 a month subscription or $100 off the $650 annual subscription. As you can infer, the annual subscription is a better deal. Either one is a win when it comes to understanding the global markets and managing your personal investments. So once again, you can sign up today for a free trial at TGMacro.com. TGMacro.com. Go check it out.
1: I am the man sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame,
0: What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on Jack Pasobic, who is a host at the One America News Network. Welcome to the show, Jack. How you doing?
2: Zubi, thanks so much for being on, man. And congratulations to you. I've just been watching your your meteoric rise over the past like 18 to 12 months or so. And it's been incredible, man. It's really incredible. And you've handled it. With such grace, so much optimism, so much positivity, its it's been a truly, truly wonderful to see.
0: Thanks a lot, man. I, I genuinely appreciate that. Uh, 2019 was a crazy year, so I'm excited <laughs> to see what happens in uh, 2020. I couldn't have predicted last year. So I've just done a, a really brief intro there, man. But for people who don't know you and haven't heard about you, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience?
2: Yeah, okay. So my name is Jack Pasobic. Um uh, after college, I lived in China for a couple of years, worked at the Shanghai American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, after working at China, I came back to the US, joined the United States military, uh, ended up serving the intelligence community through the US Navy, uh, deployed to Guantanamo Bay, spent a year down there in the interrogation cell, came back, became a military officer, served uh, numerous deployments around the world, um, got to do back in my East Asia capacity using some of that language skill, the Mandarin skills I picked up when I was living in China, uh, then was able to use those on prior intelligence deployments. Uh, Then 2016, I was instrumental in running the group Citizens for Trump. Um, It was kind of this big grassroots effort through social media, to help you know sort of uh, just on the side elect Donald Trump as president then ended up winning and then uh, starting in 2017 made the full jump into conservative media uh, doing that full time and now uh, now I'm working at One American News as a sort of a daily host uh, segment guy uh, that's coming on doing a lot of reporting around the world through that capacity but most importantly most importantly I'm married and I have one son who just in a few months will be two years old, which is like blowing my mind because I feel like, I feel like we just brought him home yesterday from the hospital and and, and now he's going to be two. And how the heck did that happen, man?
0: Awesome, man. Well, there, there's a whole lot of stuff to, to cover there. Um, but so where are you from?
2: Uh, originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area.
0: Okay, cool. And that's where that's around where you're based these days still or are you have you shifted around?
2: Of course, you moved around a lot with the military. Um, yeah that um, kind of home base so eight years ago i moved to washington dc area and then i've been i've deployed out and back numerous times over the course of that eight years so i always joke that like my stuff has been in washington for eight years my dog has been in washington for eight years uh but you know i haven't always been here for eight years
0: gotcha and what was, uh, what was your experience in the military like? I'm sure you, when you said Guantanamo Bay there, some people's ears would have perked up. Um, but what was your experience like in the military?
2: You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's definitely not, um, you know, it's definitely not like any of the movies that you've seen or, you know, the TV shows that you may have watched about the military or the intel community, certainly not Guantanamo Bay. I've only seen, funny enough, I, I always tell people this when they ask about Gitmo, right? Um, I say the only movie that really gets, comes close to getting Gitmo right is, believe it or not, the Kristen Stewart one. which like, which which like, movie, What see. movie is that? So Kristen Stewart did a, like the Twilight girl, right? She did a, a Guantanamo Bay movie um, where she plays not an interrogator, but she plays a guard uh, down there. Who's got like a, I think it's, I think it's an Iranian detainee, which also is not true because we don't have Iranians at at Guantanamo. Uh, And to my knowledge, we've never had an Iranian unless it was, you know, someone that they weren't sure about at one point, because that does happen. And uh, so it, it captures the feeling of the place pretty well. It's just kind of like this endless, nothing constantly going back and forth. Like the detainees are stuck there. The military personnel are ordered to be there. It's like nobody, you know, nobody's chosen to to be there. You're just kind of there right. and you're, you're stuck on like the, the, the butt end of the Island. So there's not really much you can do. <laughs> and even though, yeah, you're on, you're in Cuba, but, because of the way Guantanamo Bay is like it's an actual Bay, right? So because the way it's actually situated, there's these mountains off to like the north and the west, that kind of prevent a lot of the weather coming across. So you don't get a lot of rain on that side of the island. And so it becomes essentially kind of like almost like, um, like a very arid sort of climate. Uh, There's a lot of uh, cactus around big rock iguanas so people think oh yeah man beaches and palm trees and cuba must be not nope nope (laughs) just that one particular spot of the island not so much i mean and i mean yeah there's there's good like if you're into snorkeling if you're into diving diving is kind of a cult but you know um there's some people that are real into that and spearfishing and all so you can go do all those things but after a week two weeks three weeks and you realize that it's just the same stuff over and over and over, it gets, gets pretty monotonous. So that that's probably the movie that comes closest because it's just sort of this endless blah. And Mm. I've talked to folks that have experience in, in prisons, which is, you know, obviously different than what, what I I served in, but they've said that the the prison experience is very similar. Um, This idea that there's, there's prison guards, they call them, you know, corrections officers. Then there's the prisoners, and it's like, look, those guards didn't order those prisoners to be there. They, you know, they're there because of the court system and everything else and judicial system. But they're there, and then the guards are there, and so it's like you got to make do with what you got to make do. And so there's a, there's kind of a similar dynamic in that perspective, at least on a day to day basis. Even though obviously the uh, you know the surrounding issues are completely different.
0: Gotcha, man. And so, what was uh, the work that you were doing there? What was your role?
2: I uh, can't talk too. Oh, can't. So just oh, okay, about, okay, no, no, that, uh, that's what, that's okay. what no, I did I there. Plan. But um, uh, I can I could say that I worked in intelligence, and I was assigned to uh, to the interrogation cell. And you know, essentially, we were looking at uh, you know potential threats that were going on outside in the world. We could serve by the work we were doing there. That's, okay. I think, is about as much as I can no, talk. No, no,
0: that, that's fine, man. I, I'm, I'm not trying to. Try no, dude, get no, no, no. In, it's in funny. because, like,
2: um, people always ask, like, oh, Jack, you know, talk about your service, talk about your service. I'm like, yeah, I can't, <laughs> you know, and which is yeah. a little annoying sometimes, especially when something happens in the news where you know I know some very specific information that I would love to be able to uh, uh, put forward to say, oh, actually, this is going on because of this, this, and this. But I know this, this and this because of, you know, what I used to do. So I got to hold back. Um, And that's just that's just the name of the game. You sign a lifetime NDA, though. What's interesting, though, is typically uh, for that stuff, there's a 25 year requirement on uh, declassification authority. So, you know, I'd be in my 50s before any of it was really declassified. And so we always joke is like, what if our emails come out and you see you see it's like our, you know, you see like our serious stuff on one side, but then on the other hand, you could maybe see like me and my buddy joking about like, you know, who our favorite Mortal Kombat character was and like favorite finishing move and all that, you know, even though it's obviously Sub-Zero, like there's no question. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and MK2 Sub-Zero, not the, um, and, and, uh, uh, but because Guantanamo Bay is so high profile and because there's so much that goes into it, um, look, I mean, we have downtime too, you know, <laughs> because it's so high profile that there actually are um, some people going through working with Congress to declassify a lot of those documents because there's so much public interest and lawsuits and everything going into it to find out what was going on down there. So. Uh, a couple, a couple of buddies of mine. We always sort of keep an eye on it a little bit, just to see if our, you know, if our names pop up at all. Or, um, you know, we had like specific, uh, like ID numbers that you'd put on reports. But you remember what your ID number was, so you would see like, oh yeah, that's one of mine.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting, man. I, I've never, I've never spoken to someone who's, you know, been to, let alone worked at Guantanamo Bay. It's one of, it's one of those names where. You, I think everyone's like heard of it. Right. I mean, you, you were right, kind of right. alluding to that earlier and everyone's kind of just like got this like big scary picture in their brain of like, Oh, I will, gosh, say like though,
2: I, I will say though, like one thing I can definitely speak to from, from more of a meta sense as well is, you know, people have this picture of Guantanamo Bay that's been painted by the media. Right. Yeah. And Guantanamo Bay is where I learn what fake news is all about because, you know, I had that picture before I got there. I said, Oh man, if people are gonna be getting, you know, tortured and beat and waterboardings and Zero Dark 30 and all this stuff. CIA, you know, oh man, like with the with the lights flickering and like the slow moving fans and all, all that stuff, like the one the one light drop from the ceiling kind yeah, yeah. of then someone sitting in a corner, like, all right, wherever the wherever the bombs, you know, yeah. and it's nothing like that at all. It's literally like that is so that's all Hollywood, you know, and if that stuff existed, it may have existed in some of those CIA sites that you hear about that went on outside the um, outside in, in the world, places like Thailand, Afghanistan, etc. But as far as Guantanamo Bay, it's, it's nothing like that at all. I mean, people are actually really well taken care of, um, they they are very respectful and mindful of the call to prayer. They actually do the call to prayer five times a day. Um, so you hear over the loudspeakers five times a day, the call to prayer and the U.S. national anthem. So I think it's probably one of the only places in the world where you actually would hear both put out by uh, by the authorities. And so, you know, when it's time for the call to prayer, they all get together and they, you know, they go do it. And some of the, um, they're like communal living in some cells, uh, cell blocks. And so, you know, it's very respectful. It's very in keeping. There's cultural advisors that are, you know, reminding everybody, hey, this is why they do that. It might seem a little different to you. Like, why are they, you know, why are people washing their hands and feet before they go to pray? Why would they, you know, why would they do that, right? And you say, so, well, it's, it's understand it's, it's purification because they want to be in a state of as, as much purification as they can before they go to pray. And so to, you know, to an American, to someone who's a Christian, I'm Catholic myself, you know we're not used to saying that what' are you doing that for? And then they can explain it and say, oh, that's why they want to do that. So to you know someone that's just gotten there, uh, and obviously you learn over time at, at what's going on, but sure. to understand that that's why it's so important to them to uh, to want to carry this out because it has to do with their their cultural understanding. so uh, so again, it's it's learning those things and learning how to be mindful of those things in order to, Approach them from not this perspective of, uh, you know, uh, tell us the information or we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, harm you or your family. No, no. It's like be able to actually establish rapport and then work from there, even though obviously there's a large gulf between, you know, a U.S. military member and a former member of Al-Qaeda or I guess current member of Al-Qaeda. But to see if there's anything just from those shared experiences of being in the same place, uh, both kind of having to embrace the suck as we used to call it, uh, yeah. being there for as long as we got to be there and then just see if there's anything we can do to help each other. So, but then what, what blew my mind is that, so I would be there and we would allow reporters to come in. We had reporters there all the time, Miami Herald, because Miami's not far. So Miami would come down then. Uh, Red Cross was there all the time. We had foreign governments coming in all the time. We had U.S. governments coming in all the time. We had congressional delegations. We had senators. John McCain came when I was there. Dianne Feinstein. And they would come down and we would give them tours, right? We would give them tours and show everybody, answer all the questions. And it'd be just like I just told you now, just as I just described it to you, right? Mm -hmm. And then they would get off the island and and they would start and they would turn to the cameras and say, I saw the most horrific scenes that I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like they were drinking tea and watching television and playing playing PlayStation and like, like what do you they they had FIFA? <laughs> like they're, well, they're playing nuts. FIFA. They're oh no, this is oh, just inhumane, you know, conditions. And it's like, it's like what, but they know that because we can't really be as public about it, that mm. they can get away with just saying whatever they want to say, or like you'd have these stories about, um, I guess one of the biggest ones that people always hear is uh, that some soldier threw a Koran in the toilet, right? There's there's, there's always been this story. They're like, oh, some soldier threw a Quran in the toilet. Total rumor, total rumor, right? So we, when we were there, we tried to track it down. We tried to figure out, okay, who was that soldier? What was that situation? What was going on? And it's funny because it's it's one of those ones where it's like, Oh, well, I didn't see it, but a guy who was here yesterday told me that he heard that somebody on the other side of the camp is like, wait, wait, slow down. Like, no, no, no. So who was that guy? Like, when did this, is this documented somewhere? Can I read the report? Like, what's up with that? But then the media will hear these rumors because journalists, you know, journalists, Will we'll strike up conversations with people who start spilling the beans, like start talking at a term when they shouldn't be, don't realize who it is they're talking to, and they'll know that it's a rumor, and they'll know that it's, uh, you know, something that's not really backed up by any evidence, but that, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden that becomes sources confirm that at Guantanamo Bay, and, there's, and it's like this horrible thing, and it's like, OK, but that was just a rumor that was like like it like in high school when you hear stuff like, you know, crazy stuff that went on, like, oh, I heard there was this like, you know, somebody did something to somebody's locker, or this and that other thing. It's like it's like high school level gossip and rumors getting reported as fact and back to an audience, a home audience of people who, you know, they don't know any better. You know, they're reading the news, yeah. right? Also an in, in international audience too, in this case, I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. that's a world stage. So it's, 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 insane. and by the way, that's, that's one of the things too, because they say mistreatment, et cetera, et cetera. If we had actually committed mistreatment or if we had done something wrong, I mean, the media would have been on it like that. Yeah. Like they would have been, and they would know the names and they would know everything so quickly. So the idea that they couldn't get us on anything while they were trying to in that kind of environment because we were so risk averse, right, actually speaks to the professionalism of what the people who were serving, at least when I was there, um, sure. were, were going through and the level of which they were actually performing their service. But, you know, it, you know, it still doesn't matter because that's not the story they want to tell. Yeah.
0: So I have a, a couple questions there. So both from the, there might be two different answers here. So from the politician side and then from the media side, what would be their motive to paint that picture? You said you had people in politics coming in and getting a tour of the whole place and then coming out and saying that it's terrible, it's awful, all this. Like, what's their – what's the motive behind that? Why would they want to paint that picture?
2: I mean, you know, it's it's, – Which is, you know, which is the better story, right? Which is, which is a story that's going to get more eyeballs, right? That's, and that's where, that's where media is coming from. Certainly they want, they want a story that's sensational. They want a story that's, oh my gosh, we're uncovering government corruption. Hmm. We're uncovering I get, I,
0: I get that from the media perspective, yeah. but why would the, I mean, the government is the politician. So why would a government official want to paint that picture?
2: Uh, for, for the same reason it's, it's, I'm, I'm sticking uh, I'm holding, uh, the government's feet to the fire. I'm holding the military accountable. I'm holding this corrupt system um, accountable. It's, it's. I'm fighting for the people. So they, they go to, the, for them, it's their audience of the voters. Um, and so if they go and they just lie to the voters about what's going on, uh, those voters can say, oh, I support my senator because my senator was McCain, whether it's quarters, they're standing up for me, they're standing up for the ideals that I believe in. Um, because Because remember, the media it's 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 kind of a um you know one hand washing the other situation because the media is painting false picture about what's going on and by the way the reason i bring all this up is because i think we can think of other instances where this is this is happening yeah where sure the media, so the media is is painting this horrific picture this toxic picture of what's going on at guantanamo bay and then the and then and then the voters go to their politicians and say, what are you guys doing about this so the politicians can't go back to them and say Oh, it's not true. Right. Because then it's like, oh, you're just you don't believe what you read in the news. You just you're just against the media then. um, And this is, again, all this is all pre-Trump era. So Trump has kind of changed this dynamic a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, they would say they would just go along with it. And so by them going along with it, they would then have to vilify the military. They have to vilify the people who are serving down there. They have to vilify like. And like the medical, uh, core that was serving down there, the doctors and nurses and psychiatrists that were all working like 24, seven long hours, busting their butts to make sure that everybody was taken care of to the best of their ability and to just be lied about every day by their own media and their own politicians. It was disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. I gotcha, man.
0: So, I mean, this, this is interesting because I mean, you are, you are officially part of the media now, right? So I know, right? How, how, yeah. <laughs> so so tell us about how that uh, conversion happened. How did you go from being in the military to now being a journalist and reporting on OAN? I mean, what was the story there?
2: You know, it, it 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 was definitely I mean, the easiest way to say it is like it's definitely just through Twitter. Um just through getting my name out there from going and doing stuff in 2016 like Probably the biggest one, the biggest thing I used to do in 2016 was I, I would go to rallies of both sides. I would go to rallies of like Donald Trump and then I would go to rallies of Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders. And I would just post the pictures of these, uh, of this, the crowd sizes, right? Okay. And you know, nowadays people see the Trump crowd sizes, oh, that's, it's ubiquitous, it's ubiquitous, right? Like he goes somewhere, he has a big crowd, he goes somewhere, he has a big crowd. But People forget that back in 2015, 2016, that wasn't the case and that people weren't really talking about it. It wasn't known. And you weren't seeing that on any of the mainstream uh, outlets, whether it be Fox or CNN. They were not showing these big crowd sizes and what was going on. And the fact that, again, you know, whether or not you support whatever side you support, like, it's it's just reporting the truth, right? It's just reporting what's actually going on in the world, and so you would see these massive crowd sizes for Trump, and pretty big for Bernie too, by the way. Okay. And then Hillary would get out these like little, like she would fill these tiny little places, and then her campaign realized it, so they they did something in the fall of 2016 where they started changing it. They so they said, oh, it's it's not a rally, it's it's a Hillary. Um, what do they call them? A voter registration drive. And okay. they would And they would they would book like like high school, um, like a high school gym. And even mm. the high school gym wouldn't be filled up in like West Philly or something. Meanwhile, Trump's playing at like, you know, these massive arenas. right? And yet this whole time we're, we're told, oh, he's losing, he's losing, he's losing. And I'm sitting there like, I, I mean, okay, like, I, I don't see it, though. You know, I just don't see it. And so um, that was one of the big ways that like, I saw my Twitter account just start to like really, really start to rise up. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then along the way, you know, I knew certain people in the Republican party, um, whether it be from Pennsylvania or some of the other folks I knew out of DC that I would put out information that I had heard, you know, through through my sort of grapevine through my network, just kind of the same way I used to in the Intel community. And then turned out that people really wanted to hear that inside information going back and forth. And so um, basically conservative media kind of picked up on that towards the end of 2016, going into 2017. And that's when I started getting, uh, started getting offers. And then you know, started with one with Rebel out of Canada, did that for a little while, and then eventually uh, landed at One (coughs) America.
0: Okay, I got you, man. And what caused you to uh, back uh, President Trump, well, now President Trump, what caused you to get behind Donald Trump in the 2016 election and before it?
2: Yeah, so I I like how his politics is coming at it from a completely different perspective, right? Um, I used to be a total basic bro Republican, like college Republican dude when mm-hmm. I was in, um, you know, when I was in in college, right? Total cringe. Like I look mm-hmm. back on some of that stuff and it's like total Bush era, just cringe. Like I look at some of that stuff, cringe, like- cringe in what way? just cringe in the idea that, you know, um, you know, you just, just went along, just totally went along with what the party was putting out, what they were saying. I mean, like I was, I was, you know, 20, 21. I was kind mm-hmm. of just getting my feet wet and all this stuff and hadn't internalized a lot of these, uh, the issues and debates as well as I, I feel like I have later. And I hadn't really had much experience outside of the world yet. I hadn't really had much experience outside of the country. And I think that, I think that having a foreign perspective, it gives you a better perspective on your own self and your own country and your own system. I mean, like actually understanding other cultures and realizing there's different people who have different ways of thinking, totally different ways of life. You know, and China to the U.S. is about as about as far apart. Oh, yeah, man.
0: Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Saudi Arabia, so.
2: Yeah. There you go. You know, different from Western thinking, you know, Eastern versus Western thinking it's, it's real. Like it's, it's just real. What was, what was China like actually? So, well, I didn't really finish my first question. So I I appreciate the fact, I appreciate the fact that, so I kind of got disillusioned with the Republican party and sort of gave up on them and was like, all right, I'm just going to go do military and go do this stuff and like just politics is stupid. Why, you know, why do that anymore? Um, and so, and then Trump came in, and he started like upsetting a lot of the status quo. and And I like that. I like that disruption. I like the fact that he was questioning a lot of the things that we had just taken for granted forever. You know, why do we need to be involved in so many countries all the time? Why do we have to have these um these wars going on all over the place? Why do we have to be spending here and there? Why aren't we doing anything for the American people? And he, so he turned the system on its head, and I love that. Um, you know, whether or not he's been successful or going to be, you know, ultimately successful in that time will tell, but, uh, really it was, it was that coming at it from a different perspective that, that first drew me, uh, drew me to what he was doing. What was China like, man, China is a completely different place than, than I think anybody realizes, you know, they have this system, which is totally totalitarian, and yet also hyper capitalistic at, at some senses, right? I mean, it's like a totally different kind of system because we're talking post Tiananmen Square, we're talking post Chairman Mao, post Deng Xiaoping even at this point, that nobody really has a name for. In China, they call it uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, but it's it's still a, a mystery. I don't think there's really one ism that's been put to it because, you know, what they're doing now is they, they you know, they tried full on communism in the 50s and 60s, and that led to just widespread, you know, tens of millions dying, potentially fifty million if you look at the famines, yeah, uh, which yeah. they knew was going to happen because the Soviets had just tried it, you know, a generation prior, and which which is what's scary, seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's you know, there's there's different theories about that, like. Like, did, did the Soviets and did Chairman Mao target certain counties and provinces that hadn't supported him with, with famine-style ta- famine tactics because they want, like, Tibet or Ukraine, you know? And did they target those for specific reasons? And that's, that's the thing that's debated. Um, in, in Ukraine, they call it the holodomer. And, okay. and so then following his death, um, because people were already starting to move away from it, But then Chairman Mao started to purge his own party because his own party was moving against him. They created this thing called the Cultural Revolution, which is very similar to what we're going what we're in now in the West, where he just unleashed this mental illness of, you know, if you are not with the revolution, then you are against us. If you are not with us, if your parents are not with us, if your teachers are not with us, if they said anything, God bless you, if they've said anything, if they've done anything that's, you know, ever once in their lives, even if it's not recent, even if it's way in the past, you know, then you you must be destroyed. We have to hold you up and put signs around your neck and uh, with your, you know, crimes against the revolution, crimes against society, labeled them in front of you and head stadiums full of this. I mean, people don't even talk about the Chinese Cultural revolution, there's no movies about it. But- the, what they call struggle sessions, is that struggle right? sessions? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is very similar to what's going on in the US right now. You look at Antifa, you look at the Chinese Red Guards, it's very, very similar. The youth, they always use the youth. Um, colleges and schools were shut down in China for 10 years. I mean, think about that, right? We don't even talk about it, or there's no movie. Hollywood was, doesn't dare make movies about it because then they mm. get the Chinese money. Seven years in Tibet, like the one movie. They made that was actually like just told the truth about china like that's probably unless right. i can think of anything bigger but that's probably the last big hollywood tentpole movie that actually called out china right and that's what got brad pitt um banned from china for life and china will never oh, I, I didn't, I,
0: didn't was I wasn't even Japan aware of that
2: yeah wow because they just so, showed so they just showed the chinese invasion of tibet in 1950 they show how the dalai lama had to flee they showed like how it was this this culture that was completely taken over, and then suddenly phew, we don't talk about it anymore.
0: Yeah, it, it's nuts, man. I mean, yeah, chi- China's China's a, r- a real superpower, man. But I at mean, the same time,
2: they're completely they're completely ruthless with their state their state. It's state capitalism. is kind of what it is. It's like state capitalism. Yeah. So they will flood money at. You know, if they decide they want to do something, they're like, "Oh, we want to have this uh, this great high-speed rail. We want to have this Maglev train that goes from Beijing to Shanghai." And they're like, "Oh, that's great." In the U.S. now, you'd have to get an environmental pers- uh, survey. You'd have to go to the unions. You'd have to go <laughs> to talk to local landowners and go through eminent domain. You'd have to go probably face multiple lawsuits. You can pay people off. In China, it's just like get out the way, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Like get out the way. You're gone. Yeah. Move. Yeah. You're out. Or when they built the Three Gorges Dam in uh, near Chengdu, let's say they put a dam. Yangtze River is the third largest river in the world, right? So they, they said, "Oh, we're going to build a hydroelectric uh, dam across this thing." And they said, "Okay, well, you know, isn't that going to you know, this river so big? Isn't that going to create a massive reservoir? What about all the people who live there? What about them?" And I'm I'm laughing, but it's actually like it's it's it, yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's it's crazy. Yeah. It's And so there's entire cities, there's actually entire cities, like not just towns and villages, but actually cities that were submerged under the massive reservoir that was created when China um, uh, plugged up or dammed up the Three Gorges Dam at the Yangtze River there, and it's they're just underwater now. It's like, you know, sunken Atlantis kind of thing, but cities that weren't even built that long ago. And so you really have to ask this question of like, OK, how much of this sustained growth can they even handle financially? I mean, it's China like we talk about the growth of China and how they're expanding. So it's, And the Chinese people love it, by the way, you know, there, there's no um, widespread or at least I should say like like really widespread opposition uh, to the Communist Party, because number one, a lot of the people in the middle. Uh, support it, and that's through a lot, through a lot, through propaganda, a lot through censorship, control, uh, and that's also because the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, which it's the same thing. If you say government, Chinese Communist Party, it's literally the same thing. When there are dissident groups like Falun Gong, if there are dissident groups like uh, like religious groups, like the Christians, etc., others, you see what's going on in Hong Kong, you see what's going on in Taiwan. They crack down on you, man. They go, they will just crack down on you straight up because they will not let them even get off the ground. They won't let them grow. And now we're starting to see that even dissidents outside of China, right? Like Epoch Times is a a huge um, dissident group um, owned uh, media outlet that just tells the truth about what's going on. That's all they do is tell the truth. And now Facebook and NBC and all these other groups are starting to attack them, right, and they're doing the work of China because they all want to get in on China. They all want to get on that pipeline because all these companies, these multi—remember they call them multinationals now. Isn't it funny they never refer to themselves as as like American companies or British companies anymore? It's we multinationals. What does that mean? Multinational? Like what are you?
0: Uh, it's more honest, isn't it?
2: It is a little more honest, yeah. And that's <laughs> oh actually, that's the funny thing about about globalism in general. You go back to like the two thousands, like the mid two thousands. Like they're very open about like, oh, we want a globalized world. We want, you know, everyone's going to be the same. There's gonna we're going to break down all the barriers, right? Barriers to entry. That was the big thing. Barriers to entry. Won't be any more barriers to entry. Global capital markets. Global uh, human capital. You know, people just move. People. Everything we find, No more borders. Total globalization. And now, like now, it's like. You come back and then 10 years later, or 15 years later, and they'll say, we never said those things. You guys are just making that up. I'm like, no, so I got a textbook right here.
0: <laughs> so here's a question. I mean, for a lot of the people who are more, um, you know, center-right leaning in terms of the political spectrum, the word globalism is just one of those sort of uh, bad words that people just hear globalism and they're like, boo, globalism. We don't like globalism, right? Socialism, boo. It's glo- but so... What's the, for someone who's listening here, I mean, what is the sort of problem with globalism, shall we say? Like what what are the, when people say globalism is a problem or globalism is bad or globalism is an issue and, or we want more nationalism, what are the sort of fundamental and core reasons for that in your own personal view?
2: Yeah. So there's different aspects to, to the problems with globalism, but, you know, I think the one that's felt by uh, by most people you know and i can i can you know tell this by way of a story so i i is the economic side and a, pe- a lot of people focus on the cultural side and there's there's tons of obviously cultural reasons for um you know cultural identity national identity absolutely and, the, and those are kind of obvious right but the, on the economic well
0: side, you, you, you say they're obvious i don't i don't think they're obvious to
2: Well, i mean um half I mean, the population. I, I mean, language yeah. i mean values I mean, uh, laws, right? Value, our laws are based on our values, right? So if we say that every value, every culture is the same, and then every values, every all cultural values are the same, then that's almost like saying that our laws don't matter because our laws are based on our cultural values. Mm-hmm. And so if you're permitting other cultures to bring their values into our system, which doesn't have uh, a system of laws based on those values, then suddenly you you have this complete mismatch. Mm-hmm. And that you'll have politicians saying, oh, well, you're being political, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, being a racist or you're being bigoted towards that person's set of values. Says, no, 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 this is incompatible with our set of laws, right? And so this is how and there's, and there's one thing to say, like, um, you know, if uh, an orthodox religion wants to go and live by their set of rules, whether it be the orthodox uh, Jewish community, or whether it could be, you know, like the Amish community in in you know in America, and certainly we want to protect that, but it's when those laws come into conflict, that's what creates problems. That's, Mm, so you have to find a way to do that in a way that doesn't create a set of problems where you're actually breaking down our system of law because it's ultimately rests on values and that's values that we decide, right? And so in, like Joe Biden talked about this recently, he said, well, our, you know, he he was criticized, but I think he was actually right because he said, he said the American uh, system is based on English jurisprudence and that's Mm -hmm. just true. That's yeah. just a fact. Oh, yeah. It's like literally, it's 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 history. It's it, I mean, go read the Founding Fathers. Like, what do you yeah. think they were basing all that stuff on? You weren't just making it up as they went along. Like, they yeah, were yeah. well-read. And in many cases, they even went back to the classics. They went back to the Greeks. You know, I mean, this this is a long time coming uh, in terms of where American jurisprudence today comes from. And so to just throw that out and say, oh, and, and Joe Biden had to, like – Clarify what he was saying. So don't <laughs> criticize it. Why? Yeah. Would, like, what are you criticizing? It's a fact. It's like, how dare the sky be blue? It's the worst yeah. color ever, ever. It's so. Well, fa- facts, are, facts are dangerous. It's facts so are weird. dangerous. I mean, all the other colors, you know, it should yeah. be yellow. So, well, it is. I guess it is yellow sometimes, especially. <laughs> in um, I was out in Michigan recently. I went to the Trump rally there. And the way I like to report on these things is talking to people in line, especially the people that show up early, because. I don't know if you've, you've ever been to Michigan, but in Michigan right now it's pretty cold. Um, It's—I mean—it's practically Canada if you look at it. You know, and but Russia—you know—it's the same like uh, same latitude as Russia, and so it's freezing cold. And yet there's these people lined up. I said, "How long have you been here, sir?" He said, "I've been here 24 hours. I got here yesterday this time." And he's sitting out. He's got a little space heater with him, battery operated. <laughs> wow! I'm like, My goodness, you know what? what is it man what, what what does it make you want to wait out for this this guy this politician what what is it what just what's 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 the reason what's the motivation and he said to me he said I've been a union worker my whole life my family's always been union my family's all democrat I'm a democrat my dad's democrat his dad was democrat Michigan's very democrat state um yeah. and so I said, well, I said well, you know Trump's a Republican, right? So he ain't a Democrat. He said, he said, I don't look at it that way. I look at him as Trump. And I said, well, why do you support him so much? Because Trump is fighting China. And I said, hold on, what does that mean? He said that when NAFTA came in, the U.S. signed these trade deals, these multinational agreements with Mexico, with Canada, and then eventually other countries came in to find ways to exploit loopholes that were found in them. So a lot of that manufacturing base that was inside the United States and a lot of it, which represented the main industry in Michigan, right? Detroit, the car industry, right? Mm-hmm. That was pushed into other countries and, and certainly the the, the parts uh, manufacturer all went to China. That all went to China. So for these guys, globalism wasn't some word, it wasn't some like, you know, textbook theory. Uh, This was this was the way of life. You know, this was something that affected them and their lives and their livelihoods Directly Mm -hmm. and so I thought it was amazing because I was like man usually when I'm in You know DC or New York or or LA like I have to explain to people You know why it is that I think China is an adversary to the United States economically Mm -hmm. but to these guys they just they're telling me right there. Yeah, yeah, and he even said there was a cart going by that had, and this is an interesting story. There was a couple of carts going by in Michigan, selling, uh, you know, like Trump hats and different things. But it's not like the official ones. It's like some people made them and they brought them out. But nobody was touching them. Okay. And like, and they were all sitting there, and all the people were there, and all the hats were there. And I said, well, "You guys are all here waiting for Trump. You've been here for 24 hours. Why don't you buy the hats?" And he said, "Because they're made in China." Oh wow! Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Because they're made in China, so they wouldn't touch it. Because to that's them. Having something made in China wasn't just this. It wasn't some ambiguous esoteric, you know, economic theory of of protectionism versus mm, mm, mm. you know openness. Uh, it was. It, it meant your livelihood, right? It meant. Mm. It meant if I'm standing up for something made in America, that means they're thinking about how this purchase goes to aid someone in this community, which means money in their pocket that they can go. And spend on someone else in that community you know go to the bakery buy some go to a coffee shop buy a coffee right and so they want to put their dollars where uh in their own communities they want to spend in their yeah. own community right yeah and so it was that manufacturing base and look you, you drive around some areas in michigan it was very beautiful and i love my time up there but it was also very sad because you could see these massive factories and these massive warehouses and storehouses just shut down. Yeah, and you know, I was trying to get. Um, we were in the city of Battle Creek, Battle Creek, Michigan, and I was trying to get a hotel, right? And it's, I'm like, this is a city, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. actually where the Kellogg's uh, Kellogg's company is, right? You know, the cornflakes and corn puffs yeah. and everything. It's right there. So I said, well, surely there's got to be a hotel. <laughs> so we can, you know, we can stay in my video crew, and then we'll go to the rally and everything. I said, oh, we don't have any hotels that are currently open. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have hotels? Mm. Like, you're a city, right? Like, yeah, we don't really get enough people to have. Like, we have one, but it's, like, kind of shut down right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Mm -hmm. winter, and they only open, like, on, like, a seasonal. I was like, so we had to go 10 miles out of town before we can just find, like, you know, a little, like, like, Holiday Inn or something to stay in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you realize that these policies, this economics... It's affected them on a direct level. And that's why if you look at where Trump's going right now, just even the past couple of weeks, um, he's going Michigan. He's going to hit Michigan again. He's going to Wisconsin. He's going to Toledo, Ohio. He's working that Midwestern, what they used to call it, the steel belt. Now they call it the rust belt. Uh, being from Pennsylvania, I've been out to Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Steel City, right? And it's it's the same deal, all up and down uh in pennsylvania it's these towns that have just been gutted they've been you know
0: what you know what like when you just said that that just hit me like i've heard of the rust belt but i it's never struck me that it was previously called the steel belt and now it's called the rust belt i mean that that in itself that metaphor is actually quite powerful
2: right and so understanding that the these these things didn't just happen on their own Mm -hmm. right they happened because of decisions that were made by politicians and business leaders that I'm sure greatly enriched the business leaders and greatly enriched the politicians in turn, mm. but it hurt the people who were living there. It hurt the people in those areas. And we would hear this time and time again from Republicans, Democrats, didn't matter. Those jobs aren't coming back. Yeah, those yeah. jobs aren't coming back. Why you should just you should just learn to code. You should just learn to be a programmer. They still they still do that. Throw that up. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, of That's course. It's so offensive.
0: Of course. You know, I think I think a lot of it is I mean, what what you said there really something something quite hit me which is the like when you when you brought up that story with those guys waiting and the reason why they weren't buying those hats right is there's that difference between the how would i put it so i'm a i'm an oxford university graduate right and in universities especially and amongst i guess you know a lot of people with academic kind of brains there's this natural inclination to think of everything, I guess, in terms of in terms of theory. Do you see what I mean? Right. So you're oh, we've got at, that in the right? Intel
2: community too, man. Oh, oh, of course. Oh no, of course. <laughs> like, this, exactly. This is
0: cool. yeah. No, this is a large swath of the population. You know, it's you know, most people who went to college, I think, do this, especially um, to think of everything in a very kind of cerebral, theoretical way, and you know, kind of look at everything from a distance. Do you see what I mean? Right. Right. You're you're not I'm not there in Detroit or in any other part of Michigan or whatever. The
2: phrase the ivory tower comes from. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And then you've got, you know, politicians who are literally very separated, both geographically and also economically and socially and everything. And they're there. Like you said, ivory tower making certain decisions and coming up with certain theories and seeing, okay, well, on paper, this is this. And on paper. This is this and that is better and that is better. But for that person who's on the ground, I mean, you get the same thing here in the UK. Like, um, if you go a little bit north of London, especially like areas like Luton, where they used to do lots of uh, building of cars and stuff, very similar to Detroit um, and parts of the Midlands and stuff like that. Lots of those areas in the past decade have just you know they 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 took a big hit a couple of decades ago. I Great. really you know, under the Thatcher administration specifically, and they've just never really recovered. And it's like, there's two, there's two ways you can look at it really. And it's it's complicated because there's truth in both of them. So for someone who's sort of, because when you, when people say globalism, I get, I mean, globalism is to some degree economically, it's kind of just global scale capitalism, isn't it? So it's like free market, but free market across, across the world. So if it's cheaper in China, if it's cheaper in India, you manufacture it out there, and then people exactly. get cheap products and everything. And there, there is a benefit and to that, And that's it, how right? they sold
2: this to conservatives, by the way. That's yeah, how they uh, sold uh,
0: Yeah, no, I, I understand. And there is, of course, a rift there, even within the realm of conservatism. Oh,
2: yeah. And it's like, in a theory, very-
0: yeah, yeah. And it, we, we'll definitely talk about that. And in theory, it's like, okay, that's that's fine and, and whatever. But then, of course, when you're talking to those people on the ground in those areas, or you're talking to someone who did used to work in that car factory, or anything like that and you're trying to get their perspective it's just it's just a whole different it's just a whole different view of it and i think personally it can be a little bit i don't know personally where, where that right where that right balance is because um, of course the the world is always the world is always progressing we are becoming more i mean <laughs> i'm here in the uk recording a podcast with you from across the globe in, in in real time right the world is getting sort of smaller in terms of the way we communicate the places you can buy things from how people can interact, do business, communicate, and all that. And things are always going to naturally progress as technology always does progress. So it's hard to sort of know how much to, I don't know how to put it, how, how, how much you let that sort of happen naturally and to do its job versus how much you kind of fight to hold on to what was working previously. If you see what i mean right if it's if it makes more sense to manufacture yeah, that's, the car that's
2: going to be i mean products, that's, that's yeah. the inherent tension of all politics right it is that's yes the, it the is inherent tension of all politics is is how do we you know uh, if, if you look at a politician as a a steward or a manager mm-hmm. of of these things uh, which, believe me, I, I I I I just told you I was in DC for eight years. There's, there's hardly anybody who thinks of themselves that way. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's more like it's more like they're on the golf course raising money, and their staffers are telling them like how to vote and like what bills to push. Uh, I guess there's some guys like Josh Hawley that are a little different, um, yeah. you know, or like. Uh, or like Trump will have these, um, he'll, it has these, you know, uh, he, two of his, um, most common golf partners are, uh, Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul. So mm-hmm. it's really great. So you've got someone, Lindsey Graham, who's like more of a neocon and then Rand Paul, who's like more of a, an isolationist, like libertarian type. And so you have that inherent tension and yet Trump mm-hmm. likes them both. Mm-hmm. So like they're constantly bickering and then Trump kind of decides like which one is right. It's, it's this you could do a whole movie about that. Like, I'd love to see, <laughs> I'd love to see like a documentary about that or something because it's, it's just wild. And like, I hear some of the stuff that goes on, you know, they'll, you know, Oh, uh, you know, Lindsay better, better let Lindsay get this putt or else he's going to drop a drone strike on the on the, you know, on the house. <laughs> you know, kind of stuff, you know, and that's in the foreign policy perspective, but here we are talking about the economic perspective and it's, it's really amazing that we're having these conversations finally, and that there has been this global resurgence of populism of people rejecting, you know, as you called it, this, this global capitalism, uh, because it's, it's not working. It's not serving the people. Right. And we've, we've gone through, um, situations like this in the past, this origin, the last time this took place was during the industrial revolution, right. You know, and the industrial revolution hit and, uh, you know, obviously, it it disrupted so much of industry. It disrupted so much of well, excuse me, I say it created industry, but it it disrupted so much of uh, just the occupational market. And so there weren't jobs that were needed on farms as much anymore. And so you had these massive swaths of people across the globe who suddenly didn't have anything to do. And uh, you know, in some areas, they worked and went and worked into the factories, and they found out that it sucked. But then, in in some countries, it led to the rise of unions. In other countries, it led to the rise of communism and fascism and all these mm-hmm. other isms. That uh, they said, "Well, this democracy stuff doesn't seem to be working out very well for me. It's not serving my needs and my family's needs. Maybe I should turn to something more extreme." And that's yeah. that's where you actually got this extreme upheaval. And we're kind of going through a similar, um, you know. Pivot point now, or 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 turning point, I guess to use the phrase, in in terms of our economics, because we're going into the technological age, mm-hmm. um, and as you just as you just lampshaded, right? You know, yeah. you know, you're you're in the UK, I'm in DC, but we're you know, we're talking in real time, and so we haven't even quite understood the difference in terms of um in terms of what that means and what that means for you know sort of the common man woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a good politician or, you know, in my case, public figure or any, anyone who's out there, it's, we, we always need to be asking the question is if we're pushing something, is it helping the people? Is it, is it actually helping real people? Not like, you know, and, and when I hear, like one of the talking points I always hear from like the, flo- the pro-globalist crowd is, uh, well, you can you can buy a, a big screen Chinese TV and put it in your house for way cheaper than you ever could before. It's like, mm-hmm. well, having a big Chinese TV, I mean, I guess that's nice, like, okay, but I mean, isn't that just kind of like an opioid? <laughs> like, it's not really, <laughs> you know, it's not really doing anything. And I say that as a TV host, but yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's not really... Helping anyone, you know, better their life. I mean, it's you know, you can get information, you get entertainment, sure, but you know, is it really you know affecting you on a day to day basis? I would argue no. Uh, then in some cases, our our screens are getting smaller too because we're getting you know cameras and little uh, phones and watches and now they're talking about wearables, you know, on your eyelid and everything. So I mean, I don't even know, you know if the big screen TVs are that important anymore. Uh, uh, great job. Yeah, great, uh, great, great talking point, globalists. Yeah. <laughs> and so so that's that's really what we need to be thinking about you know and we talk about what's going on in the US right now you we it, not just the opioid of, of, of you know the television set but uh, actual opioids i mean the, the biggest explosion in the US right now are these deaths of despair right and that's alcoholism that's drug abuse that's suicide um, the opioid crisis i mean this is what's going on out there because you see in so many swaths of the US there's just these towns, these cities that have been gutted, absolutely cratered. You talked about some in the UK that the people don't. You know, you you walk in there, and you say, "Hey, learn to program," and you're like, "Like that'll that'll solve everything." Yeah. And and by the way, by the way, like learning to program is it's not actually like bad advice either. But it's just tone deaf. It's just completely like, like, I'm going to tell my son, he's about to turn two. I'm going to tell him, I said, learn everything you can about computers, man. Like, like learn about them. I mean, actually programming is not the number one most sought occupation. It was for a while, but then so many people learned to code that it actually of the market kind of got flooded. So it's starting to come down a little bit. Um, but people did listen to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. So, I mean, in terms of what we're talking about, I think what's really interesting with it is. People traditionally in most countries tend to split politics on the sort of left-right spectrum, but I feel like with some of these issues here, to me, this isn't really a, it's certainly not a clear left-right divide, mm-hmm. is it? It's not. It's not. It's like, a. I mean, I guess you could say nationalist versus globalist, but it seems like you have people on both sides who are in favor of one and against the other. And it's the same, in fact, in the UK, of course, we've seen this. We've got Brexit, okay? And Brexit, like most people in the US, I'm, I'm sure you you probably don't think this because you're really in the world of politics, but I noticed when I was in the US last year, most people assumed that Brexit was a left-right issue. And it's, it's not. It, it wasn't, right? Um, it's not like, okay, conservatives are pro-Brexit and uh, labor are anti-Brexit. It wasn't like that. You had people like on both sides. It like split both parties right in, in, in half. And in fact, in the U in the UK, it was more like the the more moderate, um, almost like the the center of each side, or like maybe the left leaning conservatives and the right leaning labor supporters were more pro Remain, and then actually the sort of I don't, I don't not even not even the far ends but the more sort of solidly right or solidly left were more in favor of uh, leave, at least in terms of the parties. I don't know so much about the actual individual voters, but it's just interesting how that split happened because that was very much, at least from an ideological perspective, it was very much a nationalist versus you know, more globalist, EU is not the whole globe of course, but so more nationalist
2: reason, versus globalist. Part of the reason that's happening, right? And you see that in the US as well. Um uh I, I mean, I'll throw out some a name that, you know, people probably wouldn't expect, but uh AOC, man. AOC is not a globalist. She's really mm-hmm. not. Uh and and you you look at some of the things she says, you look at some of the actions she's taken, um Globalism is ubiquitous with multinational corporations, as we talked mm, about before. Mm. So, corporatism and globalism, uh, you know, global capitalism, right? It's it's ubiquitous at MNCs. And so, Cortez has actually stood up to those corporations. She stood up to Amazon. She stood up to that. She, she helped, I mean, she's credited with destroying the Amazon deal. And guess what? Like, she was actually, uh, it actually came out that just recently, that her own state, New York state, was offering billions of dollars more in subsidies than they had ever (laughs) said publicly to Mm -hmm. Amazon to come into their city, to come into her area. And what they were going to do was completely change the entire face of of that area. Rents were going to go out of control. The... um, you know, the, the job market obviously would not be conducive to the people who currently live there. You, it, similar things are going on in Seattle. I think similar things are going on in San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, because of, of the tech, uh, sort of the tech infrastructure, the tech industry. And so AOC acted, and and like, I'm, I'm going to give her credit for this. She acted on the best interests of her constituents, mm-hmm. of the people that lived in her area. Now, that wasn't necessarily nationalism, but I guess you call it localism, yeah. right, because because she acted on the on behalf of the people that she serves. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with her on, you know. Yeah, sure, sure. Other stuff, but I'm gonna have to give her credit on that one because she looked out at what her people were saying and she worked in their interest. Like, mm. yeah, right. And at the bottom line, like that's that's what we want. That's what we should want out of our politicians. Um, I also think she's got some ideas that are that are probably <laughs> in everyone's yeah, yeah. best interest. But I'm gonna give her credit on that one because. So and Bernie Sanders, by the way, is not a globalist. Yes. This, yeah, this is yeah, what, No, yeah. You know, he is a he is a left wing populist. So populism mm-hmm. is not and and Brexit was a populist thing, right? Yeah. So populism is a left wing and a right wing thing because it it cuts across. It's just Ralph Nader was a populist, but he's obviously very you know left wing guy. Um, but I I remember going to see Ralph Nader speak uh, when I was in college, and. And I, I I sat there and I said, Yeah, you know what? He's actually got some good points about corporations. You know, he's he's talking about how a lot of our a lot of our government is set up to support these guys. Like the um I think the Aaron Brockovich movie had just come out and that was like, you know, talking about uh it was like a gas company had been poisoning uh the groundwater in an area and she'd won this major lawsuit. And it's like, yeah, like what what are the you know the the pro-corporatists I'm gonna say about that. Like, mm. obviously, we should have laws to protect cities and towns and areas from these sorts of things, right? Mm. Obviously, um, but you know, if you come at everything from just a pro corporate perspective, then you're, you know, oh well, free market will so <laughs> the people who are sick, mm. you know, and and so it, it was just though his his ideas on how to fix everything, where I was like, yeah, I'm not with you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why but, we need. But, mass- but you think. Powerful government to you know regulate everything, and you know the government will choose who gets to be put on the board of different companies. I'm like, nah, I'm not with them.
0: So, how how do you balance that? How do you you know, as someone who is a conservative, how do you balance that free market? um, How do you balance that free market with also protecting jobs and looking out for what you may call the the common man? What's the what's the balance there?
2: So that's, I mean, and that's the difference between conservatism and libertarianism, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't consider myself libertarian. I give a lot of the libertarians grief over some of their domestic policies, but on you know, foreign policy, I, I actually kind of uh, tend to be a little bit more libertarian. And yeah. it's, um, it comes down to this idea that economics shouldn't just be a free for all, right? We live in a real world. We, it's not, it's not as we, as we just talked about, it's not a world of theory. It's a real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, people get sick. People get screwed over by companies who are trying to like get a you know make extra money off you. Who are trying to defraud you. Who are trying to lie to you through marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are trying to use cult marketing uh, practices. That's the big thing right now in, in companies. Cult marketing. I mean, look at Disney. Look at Marvel. Look at Star Wars. Look at uh, Apple. Right. Google mm-hmm. a little bit. Not as much, but a little bit. Uh, Tesla certainly. It's cult yeah. marketing. It's, it's 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 be a member. Be a be a member of the the group, you Join know? the
0: tribe. Yeah.
2: We're in the tribe, yeah, it's like, wait, what? You know, and <laughs> it's you know, and then you get these kids who didn't like the end of the last Star Wars movie because it wasn't—they didn't think it was going <laughs> to, play, and they go nuts, and they're like doxing people and stalking <laughs> AJ Abrams. I'm, I'm serious. This is like. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. You know, they say, "Oh, well, we wanted these two to get together, and this one died, and it didn't work." Well, spoiler. And uh, you know, and they and they go nuts, and it's because of these cult marketing practices. And that's, uh, you know, uh, take that to the to the next level is the the tech giants, right? These these tech companies that are exerting massive, massive influence and control over our society in ways that, you know, I'm sure people like Jack Dorsey never intended, you know, to have this much. Power and influence. <laughs> I mean, I, I really do think that, and especially for Dorsey, maybe even more so than some of the others out there. But you know, I, I watch him in interviews, and you really get the sense that he's like, man, I didn't ask for this. Yeah. I didn't no, I feel the same. He's like, I yeah. just wanted like. Like and you hear that that story, and I don't know if it's if it's true or not, but he tells that story about oh, we created Twitter, and it was like, what if you could text message with the whole world? Like that was the idea. That's it. That's all it was. Like,
0: dude, (laughs) even the same. Like I'm, I'll be honest. Like I know a lot of people don't like Mark Zuckerberg, um, and I'm very neutral on him. You know, Um, but I know when when he was going through all those congressional grillings in the U.S., and he was just kind of like sitting there like a like a deer in the headlights with this like sipping his water like a robot. I, a part of me was like, man, I kind of feel sorry for this guy. Like when he started Facebook, <laughs> he was not thinking, oh, okay. In like 15 years time, I'm going to be sitting in front of Congress. He's like, getting, yeah, I'm going to
2: be getting <laughs> through my website. Just getting grilled. He's like, man, I just wanted to like look at some hot girls in Congress. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, right. like, And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like, hey guys, you know, we find ourselves in this situation and this is, this is sort of the difference between. You could say conservatives and libertarians. You could say the new right versus the old right uh, of saying, guys, look, like you have the world of theory and that's great and we love it and keep doing what you're doing. But we're talking about real situations, real people. How do we face them? And what's the best outcome for everyone? Right. Regardless of your politics, whether you like Trump, you don't like Trump, you think he's a Russian asset, whatever. You know, it's what's what's the best situation going forward based on what we have now, because You know, obviously, something like the social media giants uh, just, it wasn't even comprehensible uh, even a generation ago in politics, because are they communications platforms? Yes. Are they websites? Yes. Are they outlets? Yes. (laughs) And they're like, they're like all these different things in one. It's, it's something new. We don't even have words for it yet. So how could we possibly have laws that, you know, that govern it? And how could we possibly even have theories that catch up? Because technology is moving faster than theory. It's moving beyond these things. So we have to kind of go back to bedrock. And I always do this with folks. They say, well, Jack, what about this? And what about this line of the, this federalist paper, and this one founding father said this, I said, hold on, all right, slow down. Like, let's, let's just go back to 101, right? Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, right? What did he say? He said, we have governments to secure our rights. Right there, pretty big. Boom. And where do the rights come from? The rights come from God. Okay, the rights come from God, but then we can't always secure the rights. So we decided that we'd get some government together and the government was gonna help us secure those rights that we got from God in the first place, not from the government, from God. Okay, great. Well, some company's coming along and is infringing upon those rights, right? It doesn't matter that that company isn't part of the government, right? It, or individual or I don't know, a terrorist group or whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, if someone's infringing on those rights, we can use this power of government to secure our rights because that's the way this is supposed to work. It's like, it's like mm-hmm. perpendicular, right? And so like, I think that kind of cuts through a lot of these like these like really long arguments that people try to make about why we shouldn't ever use government to directly affect our situation, because yeah. I don't think that the people that created these organizations, these institutions, would have wanted us to not use them, right? It's that's that's the whole point. That's the part of the process. That's what kind of regulation should we have? How should we treat these things? That's the process, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, telling- I guess to to jump in there,
0: I mean, I'm I'm probably more more libertarian leaning than leaning than you are, I'd presume. But I guess my my big question there would be, well, what's the so if it comes down to almost like a a trust in government thing, doesn't it? Like if if they can do that, I think a lot of libertarians would think, okay, well, if if the government is able to do that and create those regulations on those companies, I I don't even know what those regulations might be. I mean, in the in Europe, for example, you've got uh, the government in Germany like coming up with like some Pretty weird uh, inverted commas hate speech legislation that's making some just some basic dissent illegal, um, and then you're having yeah, the other governments. That's govern- against y- our rights.
2: That's against freedom of speech. Yeah, that's company.
0: true. Um, but I guess with these companies, I, I, I as well. I guess because they are multinational, so they don't necessarily just exist in the U.S. Right? Twitter is an American company, so as is Facebook. But really, they're they're now global companies. So even though the U.S. has its Declaration of Independence. Uh, the, U- the UK doesn't France doesn't Germany doesn't Like all Every country's got A different Like the way rights Are even viewed In the UK Versus the US Is Precisely. really Yeah it's really Really different So I, I do think That actually it's, it's a little more Complicated than that I mean I think If Twitter and Facebook Were just in the US Then it might be A little bit more straightforward. But But um, yeah I, I don't really know How it squares up Especially when you Think of it on a more On a more global scale in that regard, I don't know if you've thought.
2: Again, out. we're talking about the problems with globalism. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah it's, because it's different. Guys, <laughs> this is exactly what we talked about, right? Different yeah. countries have different values. They have different sets of laws that come from different means. And it, it messes things up when you just start trying yeah. to throw it all together.
0: But surely, I mean, I, I assume you'd agree that some degree of globalism is good.
2: Well, no, I'm not an isolationist, by any means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. either. And again, this is. It, but it's, it's this idea that, you know, we have to go along with the march of globalism and tear down all the barriers and have no protections whatsoever. It's like, no, that's ridiculous. You know, that's silly. It's also not pragmatic. It's not it's not sensible, right? The, the idea was, you know, you go back to just sort of a sensible realist policy that, that countries can make agreements with each other that adhere to what makes sense, again, for the situation at hand, mm-hmm. not necessarily because of some esoteric theory of global governance and international law. But hey, this works for the US. Mm-hmm. This works for the UK. This works with the UK and the EU Oh, the UK is not in the EU anymore. All right, maybe we can renegotiate, you know, like that. That sort of thing that is, by the way, like actually how a lot of this works anyway. But um, it's its just they don't talk about it. Right. It, it's that's all behind closed doors that they that they go through these things. That why do you guys really need? All right, we'll do this. All right. What do you guys really need? We'll, we'll do this. Um, But then they call it, you know, know, these broad international agreements. I mean, TPP was a great example of that. TPP was just this massive handoff to China. I mean, it would have basically ceded the entire Asian market to China. Um, And both the left and the right in the United States were against it. And just actually, as you said, it was like that middle stripe of people that were pushing it. It was like these very technocratic, like Hillary Clinton, Michael Bloomberg Uh, Bush dynasty type people that were, that were pushing it. And it was like, what is this thing? This is weird. Why would we do that? Yeah. And what about from a
0: competitive standpoint? So say if the U S adopted, I don't know what those, these policies may be, you could maybe call it more sort of protectionist policies or more. I know some people like the term America first now, or say that that was the policy. Product, that,
2: productivist.
0: Yeah, sure. I, I I don't know what terms people like to use, but if if that were done, I don't know, I'm just popping then, that off. Yeah, yeah. Then um, I mean, from uh, I guess from an ec- from an economic standpoint, how would the, I mean, how would that affect the U.S.'s competitive nature, um, compared to other places? Again, you know, on a global scale of things, because of course the the U.S. economy is very, 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 very powerful and is a global leader and there's tons of trade and stuff like that. But what about the, you know, the, co- the cost of goods and things like that? Because the reason why, like, let's be honest, the reason why a lot of stuff is manufactured in China and India and Pakistan or whatever is because you do get cheap goods and cheap quality goods. And people do have a desire for lower cost quality goods. I just think that's, regardless of um regardless of what may be ideal i mean i think that's what people that's where people yeah, are in fact, now a lot of the chinese factories, people, when i would yeah. when
2: i would tour chinese factories with the chamber of commerce you would actually see um an interesting aspect that a lot of the companies would make like two lines of products mm-hmm. and one line would be like really high quality and that would be the line for export like international export foreign export and then there would be another line that would be kind of just like Kind of junky, lack of better term, and I said, "What's this for?" This is for internal. In trying, mm-hmm. but but they realize that they can make money off of both. So they know, right? They know that they're making the higher quality stuff for the farm market, mm-hmm. and the lower quality stuff is going internal. Um, and these are big name companies too is, that are that are doing this. And everybody, so everybody's in on this. Like everybody gets. Yeah, it. sure. That's obviously the idea. The competitive angle is basically it's it's kind of restoring those ideas of all right, instead of just letting the business owners reap all the rewards of, like, obviously cutting costs and then, you know, cutting out worker costs in the U.S. uh, without having to pay the workers as much, they're paying cheap, you know, in some cases, slave labor. The idea being is that because it's been so much of a run on these, uh, these, I'm supposed to put it, depreciated communities, depressed communities, that, all right, we've realized that now that the disparity, the gap has gotten too large. Mm-hmm. And so you want to kind of shrink that down a little bit. Like, okay, you had your fun, but these people are getting a little bit antsy about it. And you don't want them coming with the pitchforks and knives. Remember the 1% and the 99%? Oh, of course, yeah, of course. And all that, right? That's This is where those ideas come from. This is where that anger comes from. And so mm-hmm. you want to, again, you want to manage it properly so that you're you're doing what's best for the company within a country within reason within it from a sensible perspective but also taking care of the people who uh who don't have you know access to these massive capital markets mm. who don't have access to uh you know global competitiveness and who are just trying to live their lives on a mm. you know regular basis sort of the 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 average man the common person you know is that are they served by uh you know, going and deploy. You know, going and deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan and mm-hmm. everywhere else in the world to go kill the bad guy. Yeah, and then coming home and finding out that the bank repossessed the ranch because nobody could afford the payments on the loan, and suddenly it all goes like, mm. worse job," you know. And this, this is what's going on.
0: Okay, so I mean, what you've just said there. I mean, those last two minutes, I, I would think I'm, I'm def- very much speaking to, 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 a, to a left wing guy there. So I guess.
2: The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I know, right, and it's funny because, yeah, like, right. I'm not, like again, you know, I come from you know a blue collar background in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, but I, I mean, I've always been a Republican. I've always considered yeah. myself a conservative.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that the it sounds like the analysis there sounds very much like how you know more left leaning people would sort of do that analysis. I would assume that the the core difference then would be. What you would prescribe as the potential solution? So and precisely, which, I mean, yeah. So you've got, you know, your your Bernie free, Sanders and
2: free market capitalism is one of the greatest tools that mankind has ever, uh, you know, stumbled upon. I say stumbled upon because that seems to be how we discover things most of the time. But I mean, but we have to understand that it is a tool at the end of the day. And so it's this incredible wealth generation um, powerhouse. It's an engine of being able to lift people in many cases out of poverty when used correctly. We're seeing this throughout India. We're seeing this throughout China. Um, And so it's this idea that okay, when we use it responsibly, (laughs) responsible capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When we use it respond, uh, that that could be a phrase actually. (laughs) Hashtag. Hashtag responsible capitalism. <laughs> it's like drink responsibly, but like yeah, more yeah. responsibly. Um, this idea that that we should punish the people for being really good at it. Well, no, that's not true. That's not right either. Like it shouldn't mm. be punitive, right? And mm. you see this, you know, uh, you know, lock up the billionaires, the billionaires shouldn't exist. These eat, these, eat the rich. Like, yeah, eat the rich. Like, no, that's 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 not true. I mean, that's that's you you have to credit these people. I mean, guy kind of like Michael Bloomberg, right? I probably disagree with him on, on everything, but you know what guy made his money, uh, fair and square. I mean, he, he computerized wall street and boom, made, made billions doing it. Right. Um, and you know, and God love him for that. Like I, we want to encourage innovation and we want to encourage these ideas and these, and create a a society where you, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can actually, um, yeah, you know, it's the whole Iron Rand thing, right? Like, like the creator class must be uh, free to be able to, you know, innovate and to create their products and free from, uh, you know, free from attacks and being torn down. And yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so we should mm-hmm. respect people who are able to do that, who are able to be creative, who are able to be entrepreneurs. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you forget about everybody else.
0: Yeah, sure. So I guess the my, my big question then here is, so I know I know what the. I know what the left-wing solution to this is, but what would be a more right-leaning solution then to that gap that you discussed earlier? How could that gap be narrowed to any degree so you don't have people coming with the pitchforks as you as you put it before? How could that gap be narrowed without sort of squashing free market capitalism or without going the whole eat the rich route and redistributing redistributing? wealth through, I don't know whether that's income taxes or wealth taxes that they're talking about now and kind of just handing that to other people, which I'm personally not in favor of.
2: Well, I mean, the, the minute I mean Elizabeth Warren talked about this about doing wealth taxes, and I mean, it's like the minute you pass a wealth tax, they're just going to offshore it. Like it's yeah. <laughs> people, are, people, are, people, are, people are saying. That, I mean, look at Google. I mean, they're already doing the double Irish. I mean, they they already wash their you know their income back and forth. So I mean, to, so they're paying very little tax. Like all the, like the rest of the world exists. You know, it's not like one country can can do this. And that's also one of the issues with globalism, is. <laughs> but I would say I would actually say though that. You know, actually going after some of those loopholes in the tax code that companies are exploiting, shutting down those loopholes, bringing in more revenue for the government and then using that to create either uh, tax credits or just lower the taxes on working class families on uh, on middle-class families, you know, that would be something you could do right there off the top, right right from the start. Um, you look at some of the pro-family growth policies that are starting to be pushed out across Eastern Europe right now, uh, giving giving home loans, family loans to people who get married when they're young, to people, and then if you have enough kids, if you have one, two, or three kids, you don't actually have to pay back the loan. It's like, in some cases, uh, I think the one was like, thousands of dollars. I'm gonna say thousands, I can't remember off my head, but it was Hungary. Um, in Hungary, if you have four kids, you know, the, for women, if they have four kids, then you don't have to pay taxes for the rest of your life. Period. You're done. Really? You're wow.
0: Correct? That's some, that's some, nope. That's some pro natalism right there.
2: Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Poland is doing, um, Poland is doing pensions. They're doing pensions for, um, for full-time moms and grandmoms. Sure. But if you, if you ended up spending your career, you know, or would have been your, you know, quote unquote working career, mm. uh, uh, raising families, because, you know, the way they look at it is like, wait, wait, why are we demonizing women who raise families? I mean, that's like the most important thing you could possibly do. You're Amen. literally amazing society, right? You're yeah. literally creating, uh, yeah. perpetuating your society, right? We yeah. should, we should uphold them. We should reward this. This is yeah. the most wonderful thing. I mean, this was, you know, sort of the, the corollary between, oh, you know, women are slaves in the <laughs> remember that was. The, that Dude, uh, i right?
0: I'm. I'm not going to get into a whole feminism conversation, no, but yeah, the, yeah, I, I, I. often joke that the the modern day feminism was the patriarchy's greatest invention.
2: Oh yeah, it's like <laughs> go be a slave in your home. Go be. But then the corollary is go be a slave to some corporation. Exactly. <laughs> like, wait, what? Like, it's like, what's is, like,
1: is, it's like serving,
0: serving your family, your husband, and your children is like oppression and slave labor. But like serving your most likely male boss. And sitting, all of the like sitting, male executives in a job. Sitting crate. in a
2: cubicle for eight hours a day staring at a computer screen, that's freedom. I'm <laughs> like, empowering. You're that's empowering. you're empowered now. You're empowering. <laughs> like, and,
0: that, and that's not even talking about the the social aspects of like, yeah, go out and let like all these guys who don't care about you like do whatever with you. Like that's empowering. But oh no, getting married and like committing to one man who actually like likes you and loves you and wants to be with you and be faithful to you forever I'm, like I that, that, rebel that in 2020 that that is that is the slavery how <laughs> to <I'd
2: laughs> be you, a rebel in 2020 man. man
0: did you see some of the responses i got to that tweet like people were people were blowing their gaskets so i was like yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, get,
2: get married <laughs> have family have a stable life. <laughs> no <laughs> don't the, when I, I've been I've been playing around with them sometimes when I tweet it I'll put I'll put like don't drink or do drugs. Oh, oh dude, don't come for people just drugs, man. <laughs> don't don't get tattoos. <laughs> people get people. people i like, telling you, people
0: like drugs, man. Like people, yeah. real. Anytime I say something anti-drug, it's like <laughs> I get DMs.
2: <laughs> it's true. And like, I, well, get, I get US, DMs. Um, like, I get
0: DMs like, what's wrong
2: with drugs? I'm like, really? <laughs> they're drugs. <laughs> I'll get um. I, I, so in the U.S., we just in the last I don't know if you heard we just in like the last week we raised the smoking age uh, nice. by three years from 18 to 21. I just saw actually I was out getting I was out getting coffee just before this, and I saw for the first time a little placard that's uh, I took a picture of. It, I tweeted it. I said, if you are you know as of now if you are under 21, including active duty military, you wow. cannot you cannot purchase cigarettes. And then and I saw some people in the comments they were like they were like, do you mean to tell me that if I'm if I'm not 21, so it's it's 18 to join the military and it's 18 to vote, but to be 21, it's 21 to smoke or drink. And so people are saying, so I can join the military and I can vote if I'm if I'm 18. Well, shouldn't that age be raised then too? And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like no,
0: it's it's interesting. I mean, I do think there's a voting
2: al- age. <laughs> I have
0: always thought even needing to be 21 to drink in the US, I have always thought that's pretty ridiculous, to be honest. In most, uh, like in Europe, it ranges from like fourteen to eighteen. I think eighteen is the oldest of any country in Europe.
2: In China, actually, when I was in China, they didn't even have it.
0: They didn't even have it. Yeah,
2: there's no no age whatsoever.
0: Yeah, the U.S. is really interesting. One thing I always find really interesting in the U.S. is it's simultaneously one of the most free countries in the world in many ways, but it's also like more, way more regulated. (laughs) here's (laughs)
2: Which, here's <laughs> like, the thing with like the US, US and drinking age, right? And I can I can and and I could say this as someone who in my life at one point did drink, but now I'm I've been sober 14 years. Um here's here's why the drinking age in the US, regardless of what the drinking age uh, is, whether it's 18, 21, 25, whatever you do, right? Here's why it's always gonna create that tension. Because <laughs> we tell teenagers and kids, etc. that you can't drink until this point. You can't drink in this point. You can't do it. And then we glorify drinking. We glorify every movie, every commercial, every you know, every TV show. It's like, let's do shot. every song, the music. Yeah, yeah that's true. Alcohol, it's glorified. It's like the greatest thing. Shot, 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 shot. Like, you know, every everybody's, you know, drinking all the time. And look how beautiful we are. And look at how much you know, uh, you know, affluence and wealth and happiness and everything associated, with it's all because of alcohol, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so there's massive, marketing behind uh behind alcohol as if but you can't have it
1: yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good so, point so and, and so you wonder why teenagers then are always like doing everything they can to you know to like sneak and get in some you know, get into mom and dad's liquor closet or wherever it is and you know get a case of beer when you're a senior in high school um and then you turn 21 and then poof, they go you know they explode <laughs> Right. And that's that's yeah. colleges. Right. That's the college. So we get mom and dad out of the picture and then they go to college and then they blow up because why? Because like you're you're sending these crazy mixed messages. Right. Society is sending these mixed messages from a perspective of of this is the greatest thing you could possibly ever have in the world. But you're not allowed to do it. <laughs> it's like
0: what? It is interesting. I, I have always found it bizarre i've been like right. okay so, so I, went, I, 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 can buy, china, I can buy i could buy this ar-15 but i
2: can't drink okay right right And china and in china it was like like they don't have that like matt it was like hey we have a drink and if you drink it it's it's good yeah <laughs> like that's the extent of like their their drinking you know uh, uh push from society mm. so you know and then they see dad drink like oh yeah dad's having a drink yeah. Yeah. that's well, it that's interesting <laughs> and then of
0: course in saudi arabia
2: totally right
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> zero yeah, man, it's it's interesting, but I think I think that's the uh, as you as you we were talking to at the very beginning of the podcast. I think that's the sort of one of the core benefits you get by not just traveling, but by living in different places with different cultures and just being right. able to one, see one things thing, from different one angles. Big
2: criticism that I would have of Republicans and conservatives is that they they put everything. They define everything by individual responsibility, which is good, which is very good. And that should be our standards, our legal standard, obviously. But they completely miss the idea of social messaging. Mm. And they think that there's, like, it's like they act as if society doesn't send messages all the time, Mm -hmm. right? And these major, um, these major influence hubs in the United, that's why, you know, influencer community, right? Like Instagram, like, that's why they're called influencers, because they're people who have influence. They, because they send social social messages, right? You mean to tell me the Kardashians don't have social power in the United States? Have you seen the United States? Of course, man, yeah. Right, like that's power, right? Down, that's, down to
0: what women want to look like.
2: Right, and that's so the Kardashians got big. Now, every so, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, Media Matters going to love this, but all women want to look like Kardashians now, everyone, even the one, you know, they're like, it's like, but wait, there's, there's an Armenian. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't, Doesn't matter. matter. <laughs> Give me the contour, shapeshifters, shifters yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's nuts, man. I'm just looking at the time, man. We, this is, uh, this has gone on way longer than I normally do, but I've been, I've been loving the conversation. We will have to do another one in the future after this one. Um, but before we go, uh, let people know where they can find you online.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, easiest place to find me online. I live on Twitter. I think everybody knows that. Uh, just hit 600,000. Woo. Thank you so much to everybody who follows on there. Um, J C K P O S O B I E C. Thank you. Uh, also on Instagram. And of course, uh, one American news, we're on YouTube and then oann.com. We've got like a, uh, an international stream. You guys can subscribe on there. We do 24 seven news. Uh, and, and, and I'm there, man, I'm there this, this year. I'm also going to be, I've got two projects I'm working on right now. Uh, one of which is uh, a book on Antifa, going to be breaking down everything about who they are, where they come from, how this is not a new group by any, I mean, Antifa goes back 150 years or more. Mm -hmm. And so understanding this ideology and what it means to today uh, through their own words, in many cases, that's what we're going to be doing. And then I'm also, uh, I I did a huge marketing push on this. We're fully funded. We're putting out a graphic novel. uh, later this. It's going to come out. So it's it's kind of based around myself, a couple of other folks, and sort of like the conservative uh, community, and uh, looking at these ideas of globalism, climate change, the green agenda, but through a different sort of lens, through the through a story, through art, through culture. And I'm working with like DC and Marvel level people in terms of doing it. Uh, the guy who created Bane, the character Bane from Batman, is literally wow. like uh, working on the comic. So it's it's, really, so dope. it's, amazing. it's really amazing.
0: Awesome, man. And that's coming out later this year?
2: I'll be out later this year, yeah.
0: Fantastic, man. I look, I look forward to checking that out.
2: Get you in with the headphones. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is Real Talk with Zuby. We've just had uh, Jack Posobiec. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate Thanks, it.
2: Thanks, Zuby.